Welcome to the Red Door Church Sermon Podcast. Red Door Church is a church seeking to transform the city of Pretoria by the power of the gospel. We are distinctly mission-minded, community-cultivating, and city-loving. Please enjoy this week's sermon, and don't forget to follow and continue the conversation by sharing with those around you. At the end of the year, we've got the opportunity to see friends and family that we haven't been able to see throughout the year, especially in a year that we've had so many different lockdowns. And as always, I find it interesting that the conversations we have when seeing someone again for the first time, you unknowingly enter into these conversations with an agenda. Most of us have something that we want the other person to actually know about us. We want them to know about what happened this year or there's some things that we don't actually want them to find out. And here's what I mean. We're all actually a little bit insecure about who we are and uh, what we do. And so we crave other people's approval. If I did really well in my job this year, I would intentionally try and steer the conversation in that direction so that other people can ask me about that and find out about what I did well. If I lost my job, I would avoid the conversation at all costs. And so here's the first discussion question for you guys. What is the one thing that you want people to know about you that makes you feel better about yourself? Or the subject that you maybe want to steer clear of that you want people not to find out about yourself. This is going to be some interesting conversations around the Christmas table. But if you're struggling to answer this question, just think about the stories you constantly put on your Instagram. And it will give you a good idea about the things that you actually want other people to know about you. Is it how well you did academically? The amount of weight you lost this year so that everyone can compliment you on beach season. The fact that you worked so hard and stayed up late as a parent. The fact that you have saved or the fact that you spent money. The toys you bought. Your house. The renovations. The trips you took. The miles you ran. The relationships you started. It's amazing how much of our lives is driven not necessarily by ambition but by fear, by seeking the approval of other people, craving affirmation. And the problem with this is, is if this is the driving force, then it creates a lopsided effect. If we crave affirmation at work, we work too hard. If we crave affirmation by the way that we look, we idolize our bodies and we have unhealthy rhythms and it has negative effects on our relationships. No matter how, work, how hard we work for this approval, it always seems to kind of elude us, evade us. And the reason for this is approval can only be given and never earned. And so when we try and earn approval from people, it always makes our lives unbalanced. Family, this is what Christmas is about. It is experiencing something we all crave to center our lives around, to give balance and equality to what we've been busy with. And that brings us to today's text. And so let me just bring us up to speed. If you haven't been part of the series, if you haven't been uh, watching the video so far and you're here for the first time, the context is we're in this place where King Herod wants to kill Jesus when he was just born. And so Joseph had to take his family and flee to Egypt. And after the death of King Herod, Joseph returned to Nazareth. And Jesus grew up and was starting his ministry. John the Baptist is actually Jesus' cousin. And we 
can for sure know that they actually knew one another. Mary, Jesus' mother, visited Elizabeth, John's mom, and when she was pregnant with Jesus. And so our text starts with John, and John is called John the Baptist because it is a great description for the ministry that he was busy with. Preaching a message in the wilderness of Judea, he was fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy about preparing the way for the Lord, meaning that he was the opening act to the Christ, the Savior that was to come to save the world. John's job was to make sure that people prepare themselves that they would not miss the Christ when he appears. Specifically, people were to prepare their hearts. Even though Jesus would come performing miracles and fulfilling prophecies, giving wondrous teaching and revealing the mysteries of God, people were still in danger of missing him. If that was true then, it's definitely true of us today. People are in danger of missing the point that Jesus is the Christ. And this is the message that John was preaching on to prepare people's hearts. He was saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Which is an interesting message to be preaching. Not one of make sure that you've got love in your heart or be kind to your neighbor or live a good life, attend synagogues so that you know the Bible. No, the message was to prepare your heart for the coming of the king. And the way that you were to prepare your heart is through repentance. Now repentance means to turn away from one thing and turn towards something else. Basically it is changing course and walking in a different direction. Repentance is moving away from trusting in the things of the world to trusting in the work of God. In essence, repentance is the acknowledgement that we need a savior. What we need is to be able to show true repentance and what we need for that is humility. It is coming to the end of yourself and recognizing that you actually need outside help. Public enemy number one of repentance is pride. Pride is what keeps us from truly seeking a savior. Pride is what keeps us looking to ourselves, thinking that we can save ourselves. It is what keeps us every day, even in our everyday lives, from not asking for help, but trying to figure things out by our own. What we need is humility. Humility that enables us to recognize and, yes, to accept a Savior. That is why John was preaching And also preaching a baptism of repentance. Now this is a different baptism from that you would receive after becoming a Christian. Remember, he was still paving the way for Christ. And so people would come to John, they would repent of their sins and then they would be baptized. That is being fully immersed in the river Jordan and thereby symbolizing they need to be cleansed fully. There's no part of me that is pure. I need help. It is unto this stage that we see two very different interactions that John the baptism John the Baptist encounters. Two different scenes that happens on this stage set. His first interaction is that with the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the second is with Jesus. Now, both of these interactions are extremely important for us today as we contemplate the true meaning of Christmas, the birth of Jesus. The Christ. 
And so let's start with scene one. John was baptizing in the wilderness, and so people had to travel quite a way to get there. But a lot of people went. We see the whole region actually went to see John. And so this was causing quite a bit of a stir, and everyone was talking about this, so much so that the Pharisees and Sadducees experienced extreme FOMO. They didn't want to miss out on what was happening, and so they went to see what all the commotion was about. As John is dipping people, dressed with camel hair, leather belt, eating grasshoppers and living off honey, he's a lookalike or a cross between Shaka Zulu and the Crocodile Hunter. Let's just say you wouldn't appoint John the Baptist as Father Christmas at the mall. And John the Baptist, as he is busy just dipping people, he looks over and he sees the religious leaders coming, those in charge of guarding the doctrine, those in charge of teaching the people of God about God. And without a beat, he calls out to them in verse 8 and says, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? He's saying... They are son of snakes, brood of vipers. A very common image used to say that you are sons of the devil. This is super harsh. Who warned you of the wrath to come? His first accusation or statement about this religious group is that they are obviously on the wrong track. They're obviously on the wrong path. The only reason why they went to see John is to see what extra religious practice they can pick up. Like collecting stamps, they could add this to their collection or their badge. I went to see John the Baptist. They're not really repenting or really thinking that they're in any sort of danger. Rather, they're centering their lives around what people think about them. And they're collecting more evidence that they think that they're okay. And so John continues in verse 8 and he says, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So why was John coming down so hard in this group, making these big statements and accusations. What is going on here? We pick up small nuances and the type of things that he's telling them. John tells them, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. So here's what's going on. The Pharisees and Sadducees were scholars not only of the law, the Torah, but also of the religious traditions passed on making a living out of practicing these traditions and enforcing it to the others. They would take immense pride in the fact that they were descendants of Abraham, believing that their Jewish pedigree gave them great stature, not only before people, but also before God. God is only too happy to have me as his servant. Such a well-groomed, well-connected man. Obviously, I'm better than the people around me. Obviously, I am welcomed into God's kingdom. His kingdom is made for people like me. John says, no. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. If you claim that you have turned away from the world, 
and trusting not in the things of the world or in the approval of the world and trusting in God, your life should reflect this. And primarily that means living a life of humility. If there's any thought, any notion that you are not only saved, but that you deserve to be saved because of who you are, what you've done, what you have, your stature, you're not only in danger of not being saved, you're actually in opposition to God. Satan was the original one to fall as a result of pride, thinking that he was somehow equal with God. And it's the ultimate form of idolatry, idolizing yourself above God. You're telling God and the people around you, I don't need you, God. I don't need a savior. Even though they carried the title people of God, leaders of God's people, teachers of the law, they were in danger of missing Christ, expecting something else, not the unexpected savior. John pronounces a warning. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Those who do not bear fruit of repentance will be cut down and thrown into the fire. The prideful will be cut down and forcefully humbled. Behold, one is coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. Now remember, John knows who Jesus is. Jesus is family. And yet we'll see in a moment that John recognizes that Jesus is no ordinary man, even though Jesus was part of ordinary life and did ordinary things. John's heart was in a place of humility and he recognizes that he is not even worthy to carry Jesus's sandals. Humble yourselves before this Christ. Humble your hearts or you might become so big in your own eyes that you can't even see him if he's standing right in front of you. This is a stern warning and wake-up call for all of us as we contemplate the meaning of Christmas. The story of Jesus becoming a man Taking on flesh is a story of God humbling himself and taking on human form. If we fail to see this and only see simply a cute baby in a manger, baby Jesus, or come let us adore him and not fall down on our knees in humility, crying out for help, we're missing the point. If we somehow have gotten used to this story and we've heard it over and over again and grew up in a Christian environment or a Christian home, or we think that I live an okay life and somehow think, how lucky is Jesus that he gets to save me? We need to take seriously and reflect on the words of John. Bear fruits of repentance. We need to be characterized by humility, recognizing that we need the Savior's help and not the approval of people around us. Nothing else will bring you in good standing with God. Not your race, not your financial well-being, your good intentions, or that you're a good person. Not that you belong to a church or go to a church or even that you know a lot about the Bible. According to John, what we need is to bear fruit of repentance and allow that to change our lives. But fam, if we're honest with one another, even this at the best of times is problematic. Even though I know that I'm supposed to only trust in the work of Jesus, even though I know that I'm only supposed to cry out to Him humbly and request Him as a Savior, I constantly run to other things to make me look better or feel better about myself. Many Saviors, many Jesuses, to make me feel better about myself, to try and make myself even more acceptable to God. I want to be affirmed. 
I want to feel like I'm doing a good job. I want to be liked. I want to be valued. But like we mentioned in the beginning, this gets twisted. If we feel this isn't happening, how are we then to live this life of repentance? Family, that's why Christmas is such good news, as we'll see in the second scene unfolding. Let me read for us from verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be now so, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went from up the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. What we see happening here is one of the sweetest passages in the Bible. It highlights the beauty of Christmas and the light burden of Christianity. Let me explain. Often throughout the Old Testament, we see that the nation of Israel is referred to as God's Son. They were supposed to be this righteous nation in whom God is well pleased, but they constantly failed. They constantly messed up, trusting in other things. Then we see God appointed kings to represent the nation of Israel, and they were called the Son of God. But they constantly failed as well, unable to uphold the righteous life that they were called to. Thank to Jesus. This is the brilliance of Jesus' birth. God didn't just beam Jesus down as an adult. No, he became God incarnate. Being born, he was fully man, therefore able to represent humanity, yet fully God therefore able to live a fully righteous life. As Jesus lived, he lived the perfect life growing up, resisting every single temptation, doing everything that was expected from God and the law, fulfilling all righteousness. And that's why it was necessary for Jesus to be born and not just appear as an adult. He needed to live the life we never could. Doing all of this, we hear the best confirmation ever. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Finally, we have someone that is able not only to be God's Son, but be the Son in whom God is well pleased. Here comes the exciting bit. When Jesus was crucified for our sins, even though He was righteous, when He was raised from the dead, we now have the great exchange. Everyone who believes and trusts in Jesus is now called the Son of God. We then are sons and daughters of God, meaning that the the title which Jesus earned, the Son in whom God is well pleased, now belongs to us. If you're a Christian, God looks at you and doesn't see your mistakes, your shortcomings, or even your sin. He sees the perfect life of Jesus. He looks at you and His expression, His words to you is, This is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. There's nothing that we can do to earn this. Or more importantly, there's nothing that we can do to disqualify us from this great truth. We need to repent 
recognize that we need a Savior, trust in the work of Christ, and then believe and accept this beautiful truth from God. Imagine what your life would look like if you truly believed this truth. No longer would you crave the approval and affirmation of others because you received it from the God Most High. No longer would your life be ruled by fear from failing, fear from missing out because you already succeeded. You already received it all in Jesus. No longer would you need to be argumentative, having to always prove that you're right because you're afraid of what it would mean if you're wrong. It would change the way we work or work out. We would have greater balance between rest, work and play. Not overworking because that's not who I am. That's not my identity. Not fleeing to exercise to feel better about my body, but living healthily. Not only wanting to do fun stuff because we don't have the fear of missing out and that's not our escape. Rather, if our primary affection is Jesus and we believe that we are affectionately looked upon by God, we have a life of balance. Because the right approval is at the center of it all. Not earned, but given by God. Family, what would this change for you if you believed this truth all the more? Because this indeed is true if you fully believe in God, in Jesus. And so when we contemplate Jesus' birth, see that not only did God come to save us from our sins, but a God who became a man so that we can become the beloved children of God. Allow this truth to set you free from all the expectations that you put on yourself. Maybe your family puts on you or even the culture around you of who you should be, what relationships you already should have, what you already should have accomplished. And live the life of people chosen by God. Amen. And let me remind us of some application questions that you guys can have and discuss maybe with one another after this. So number one, what is the one thing you want other people to know about you so that you can feel better about yourself? That should be an interesting conversation. Number two, how have you understood repentance in the past? Does it help thinking about the fact of humbling yourself before God is actually part of repentance? Number three, What would change in your life if you started to believe this truth more and more? The truth that you are God's beloved child. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, what a glorious truth your incarnation is. The incarnation setting us free from FOMO and you only live once and all the other acronyms, but rather giving us this deep peace that we are not only approved of by you, but we are loved by you. We are your beloved children. I pray that this fact would not only set us free from the expectations around us, but would allow us to recklessly love those around us. That we don't try and earn their love and earn their respect, but we've already received it from you and so we can give it to them. Father, we thank you for a day like this and we thank you for the opportunity to share this day, this special day with people who don't know you yet. Use this for your glory and our benefit. Amen.